Hello. Today I'd like to talk to you about perhaps a different way of understanding emotions. I'd like to help uh, draw a line between and help us understand the connection between what we think and how we feel, and especially connecting what goes on in our body. This connection between the mind and the body uh, is an important one and one that's often missing in our understanding today of issues like depression, anxiety, and insomnia. So let's start talking about emotions. And let's talk about an emotion first that we all know a lot about, fear. We know quite a bit about fear. So let's imagine now that sitting where you are right now, that a bear suddenly walked through the door or came upon you if you're outside, I suppose. Oh my goodness. You might think, oh my God, he's going to eat me and we're all going to die. And your heart would start pumping. Now, what is it in that scenario that causes your heart to start pumping? Yeah, you remember, you know this one. It, it starts with an A. That's right, adrenaline. Yeah, the adrenaline starts pumping. Adrenaline, as you know, comes from these little glands on your on top of your kidneys. And when adrenaline starts pumping, uh, it makes you get ready to do what? To run away or to fight or to freeze up. Uh, you all know that as the what syndrome? The fight or flight syndrome or response. Yeah. So the heart starts beating faster so it can pump the blood away from your gut where it's busy digesting your food out to your muscles where they get stronger. You can fight faster and makes your body sweat so the better body temperature regulating helps you run farther and faster and fight better. And your pupils get bigger so you can let in more light and see better. And all of these changes come about that help you survive. Now, in this scenario, what was it that started the adrenaline pumping? Ah, that's my only trick question. Almost everybody says, it was the bear. It wasn't the bear. It was my thought about the bear. <gasps> He's going to eat me. I'm going to die. It's that thought that started my adrenaline pumping. No bear required. In fact, there may have been a bear that came through my door or that came upon me. But if it was a bear that I knew, if this was a bear I raised from a cub, he's Benji, you know, he's in the circus, he juggles. <laughs> there would be a bear there, I wouldn't have that thought, and there would be no adrenaline. Ah. So it's not the bear that's causing my chemical to start pumping, but rather my thought about the bear that's controlling that. Now, this is an important kind of uh, point here. It's the thought of the bear that's resulting in a physical change in my body in the pumping of this chemical, adrenaline, that sets up a change that I can feel. Now when I feel that, when I feel my heart beating and the sweating and so forth, and the pit in my stomach that comes from my blood being shunted out from there, I've learned that I call that, those feelings, I call that fear. Or I, or I call it anxiety. Or, or I call it excitement if I'm riding on a roller coaster. Or I call it anger if it's a, you know, remember it's a fight or flight response. At any rate, it's that feeling that physical sensation that is what is what I then give a name to as an emotion. Similarly, if I think of things that are sad, that are tragic, that are lost, as I think of those things, it also stimulates the production of other chemicals. These are a little less well-known, but uh, they're increasingly in the common parlance. This is dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine. And these chemicals cause other physical reactions in the body. For example, tears. When I think of sad things, the chemicals start pumping that cause me to start producing tears. My tear ducts uh, produce those. Uh, the uh, other physical changes come along with uh, disturbances in my sleep and my appetite and a decrease in energy and so forth. All of this coming about 
as a result of what I'm thinking. When I have those physical sensations, I've learned that I call that sadness, or I call it melancholy, or I call it depression. Hmm. Similarly, <coughs> if I think of things that are very happy and joyful, I start pumping other chemicals. These are uh, called nature's opioids, uh, endorphins and enkephalins, and, and those chemicals uh, produce uh, sensations of tingling and light feelings and chuckling and laughing and so forth. And I've learned that when I feel those things, I call it happiness or joy, enjoyment. Also, if I think of things that are sexual in nature, other chemicals start pumping and physical things happen. And the point of all that is that what we think, what goes on in the mind, has an influence on the body. The body responds chemically in response to what we're thinking. Those chemical changes are what we call emotions. And so you can see now the clear connection between what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling. It is, in fact, what I think that's causing what I feel. But that brings us to point number two. Point number one was that it's the thinking that results in these physical changes we call feeling. Point number two is this. I'm not always aware of what I'm thinking. In fact, much of the time I'm not very aware of what I'm thinking. What I'm thinking is uh, that I am thinking all the time, but it's kind of like on autopilot. Do you drive a car? Do you ride a bike? If you do, and you can remember back to when you were learning, you had to think pretty hard about what to do, driving a car, where to put your hands on the steering wheel and where all of the levers are and where the pedals are and which foot goes where and what you do in what order. And it required a great deal of learning and thought and was a very intense uh, learning process. And then once you did learn, you begin to develop habits of doing it so that you could drive as you do now rather automatically. Most of us drive on autopilot most of the time. Works out pretty well. Uh, that is, it's still me driving, but I'm not doing it as consciously, and I don't need to do it as consciously, because now I have a habit, muscle memory as it's often called, but also mental memory of what to do and how automatically to respond to things. I can take over consciously and drive again as I did when I was learning if I want to or need to, but most of the time I can kick back and drive on autopilot. I might end up going, starting to go to the wrong place I did last weekend, but it was still me driving. I had to override the habit of what I was doing with something more conscious. Well, it turns out that thinking works the same way. That once I uh, begin to practice what I think, what I begin to uh, develop an, an understanding of something new, to learn something or to develop uh, a belief, then that belief, that learning, also begins to develop habits of my thinking, develops neural pathways. And we know from neural imaging now that these pathways get connected and allow us to do things with an uh, in an automatic way, it's called automaticity, uh, so that we can, by habit, respond in our thinking the same way that we do in our behaving. And so that's why I say most of the time what we're thinking is not something we're very aware of. It's still me thinking, just like it's me driving the car, but I'm not doing it with this front part of the brain that's involved in the learning. I'm doing it with a much deeper part of the brain back here that's involved in habit. And so, like with most habits, it comes up, and it's the easiest, it's the path of least resistance. Thank goodness for habit, it helps us do things very well. But it's the habits of thought that we develop that are the background and the sort of substrate and the default part of our mind that's going on when we're not actively thinking about something. At any given moment, you can think anything you want to. If you want to think about pink elephants right now, you can. But when you stop thinking on purpose, you'll go back to the default mode of thinking. Imagine when you lay down in bed at night, you usually don't say, now I'm going to think about uh, uh, the Red Sox game. You think about whatever kind of comes to mind as you lay and start to go to sleep. At that point, most likely, 
the habits of thought are what's going to be on your mind. Now, if those are good habits in the sense that they're not something that pumps adrenaline, then they probably won't keep you from falling asleep. But if they're what you might call a bad habit of thought, thinking about things that are anxiety-provoking, fear-inducing, and so forth, that is, thoughts of dangerous things, worries, for instance, which is a form of fear, you'll be pumping adrenaline and you won't fall asleep. You're not going to fall asleep while you're being chased by a bear. So similarly, if I've developed habits of thought of things that are fearful, things that are scary, and mostly because fearful and terrible things have happened in my life, then I might have habits of thinking in ways of things that are scary that I might call an anxiety problem. And in that way, I have an anxiety disorder. It's still me thinking about the things, and it's my thinking that's causing me to feel anxious. It's just that that thinking seems out of control because it's become a habit. It's difficult to identify what the habits are and to change those habits until they become more adaptive. And so finally, in the same way with depression, if I've learned uh, to think of things in a way uh, that's about the sadness, and mostly if I rehearsed and spent a lot of time thinking about things that are sad and lost and tragic, most of the time true and true experiences and real trauma and real events and real losses, the more time that I spend thinking those things, the more time my body will respond chemically, and thus I will have what's classically called depression, and the chemical part of it will be there. There'll be a chemical imbalance. But we'll understand that the balance has come from what I'm thinking. It's my thinking that's caused the chemical imbalance that you hear about and gets addressed with medicines. In our next conversation, we're going to talk about then the medicine and how those interact and how to use medicines and think about them in ways when you're trying to help with things like depression and anxiety and how not to get pulled into the idea that medicine is what's going to cure depression and anxiety. But rather the cure will come from an increased ability to be conscious of and have control over habits of thought so that you get to choose where your default mode of thinking is most of the time and you'll be able to have your hands on the reins of those wild horses of your emotions and moods and steer them as you wish, hopefully into a place that brings you peace of mind. I'll talk to you soon. This is Dr. Amos. Bye-bye.